right, thank you, Scott Shannon. 145 days before you, we, the American people, what do I say? You are the ultimate jury and you will decide. You know, before I went away for, I always take two weeks around Christmas, New Year's. That's that's my long vacation every year. And, and I don't really take a lot of vacation. I have a lot more weeks vacation that I can take. I just, even the days that I have the predetermined to take off, half of them I end up saying, all right, there's too much breaking news, I'll do it. Linda, how often do I say that? Drives more her More often nuts. than I like, that's for sure. Um, more often than I like, because then it interrupts her schedule. It's that's a, correct. And now I have to get a guest. Now I, have to, I told you you were going to want off that day, and then you said, mm-hmm. yeah, definite, 100%. Yes, news breaks, no, I'm coming in. Mm-hmm. It frustrates her. It frustrates me, too. But I always say, especially leading into presidential election years, and I said it this past, before I went on vacation this past winter, that get your rest in and buckle up because starting in January, uh, it is going to be an emotional roller coaster. And I, I even said and suggested this is going to be worse than normal than you've ever seen in your life. And I said it when I got back from vacation, buckle up because this is going to be rocky and this is going to be rough and this is going to be tough and it's going to be all of those things combined. I, I have to admit that, you know, I, I've been I'm doing this 31 years on radio. I've been doing this 25 years on Fox News and it's never been this bad. You know, on the one side of all of this, I have a deep sense of sadness in terms of what the country has been through, is going through. Um, I don't like a lot of what I see. I would love to be able to tell you with certainty what's going to happen in 145 days. I know what I'd like to hear. I know what I'd like to watch. You know, we can now project that Donald J. Trump has been reelected president of the United States. And then just to watch, you know, all the mob in the media and their heads spin around in circles again and again and again before they projectile vomit, you know, pea soup, uh, just like in The Exorcist. But I can't say that. There's nobody right now, and everyone's going to make their prediction, that can tell you with any certainty what's going to happen in November. But the stakes couldn't be higher. And if, you know, anybody would have told you that, look at where we are. It is today, June 11th. And since January, I mean, it has been nonstop. Between a pandemic, the worst since 1917, 1918, and, and all the associated conflict that comes with that and all the politics and all the finger pointing, you know, then, of course, the, the, the video, the seven minutes, 55 seconds that shocked the conscience of a nation uh, leading into now we're almost at 800 police officers that have been hurt as a as a result of the aftermath, not from the peaceful protesters, but by people, you know, that that have other agendas Uh, You're not honoring the memory of George Floyd if you're out there looting involved in arson or taking over city blocks and taking over a a police precinct or burning down a police precinct or burning down businesses and burning down homes and destroying other people's lives that are trying to recover economically post-COVID-19. That's not the answer either. And then you've got the never-ending, you know, battle that, you know, every single solitary second of Every every second, every minute, every hour of every 24 hour day that it is, you know, a, a group think psychosis of rage and, and psychosis against hating Trump every minute of the day, hating all things conservative every minute of every day. And but that's where we are. That's the reality. I actually can predict, I think, one thing fairly accurately. 
Uh, well, two things. One, I don't think anybody can tell you what the results are going to be in this election year. That I can tell you. I can all, And if they say they know, they don't. Nobody knows. You want to want to I'll give you some like evidence of that. The polling information and in the exit polling information 2016 or the exit polling information in 2004 that said John Kerry, I voted for the 87 billion before I voted against it. He won and George W. Bush lost. That played out live right on this radio show. Uh, after the break at at five thirty, when Dick Cheney just gets off a plane and calls into this show and says, "Hey, uh, yeah, if you're in Ohio, Florida, because he saw the exit polls, and we saw Donald Trump in 2016 in the exit polls, he lost Florida, he lost North Carolina, he lost Ohio, he lost Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Like he, he didn't win basically a single state." Uh, according to those polls, and you can actually, it's reflected in the coverage. Now, this they have this game the mob and the media plays, as we all see that information, but they don't say it. They just go on and make proclamations with great authority that, you know, they thought this was going to be a good night and Hillary Rodham Clinton was going to be declared the 45th president of the United States. It didn't work out that way. Something happened. The irredeemable deplorables and the smelly Trump uh, Walmart shopping uh, voters went out and those that bitterly cling to their God, their Bibles, their Constitution and religion, they, they had a say in that election, too. And they shocked the world. And then we now I, I never thought we'd spend three years also plus, And it's still it, we're still untangling the mess of what started even before that last election. And that is that there was this effort of a group of people abusing power corruptly that tried to stop Donald Trump from being elected president. And then they now then they used phony information they told was phony, told what Hillary paid for it. Now we know they knew it much earlier than we ever even suspected before the first FISA application. Then it's premeditated fraud on a FISA court. And you see all the things that resulted in all of that with Manafort, Cohn, Roger Stone, who's scheduled to go to jail, I guess, in what, uh, 19 days or so. Uh, and you see, you know, pre-dawn raids, process crimes, 29 guys, tactical gear and CNN cameras. I wouldn't have predicted all of that the last four years either. And it's been never ending, you know, witch hunt, hoax, you know, whatever. But when you look at this moment, this big picture, it is there's a part of this that is so sad and so unnecessary. And it makes me worry about the fu- the future of the country in general. I mean, we are that divided, you know, and I, you know, this is what I've tried to capture. I've been researching and writing this book that will be coming out in early August. And I talk about the history of our founding, what the principles were. I talk about the history of the failures of socialism and I go in chapter and verse and I go in and I talk about the the absolute abject record of failure of Barack and Joe. And then I compare it to the positive outcomes in the Trump economy pre-coronavirus, and I'll even predict for you, I think the beginning of the V recovery is absolutely positively real. And after we get the bad news, economic news in the second quarter, I, I think you're going to start getting economic news that is going to blow away like the models were wrong with Corona, blow, blow the false narrative away. And, and the left is going to have to deal with the fact that, hey, he's the guy to, to now finish this job because Look at what he's been able to pull off. Now, in the interim, the largest, fastest, 
mass mobilization, medical mobilization in history. And the incompetence of, of these governors in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, etc. Um, but then you look at, you know, all of the what we're watching here. I mean, you watch the media. I mean, OK, Joy Behar um, literally has this is the headline. I take it back. Joy Behar making made to retract comments because she's calling the president of the United States a domestic terrorist. That's As a what of fact, now- he has the nerve to call anybody a domestic terrorist. He's the domestic terrorist. He's the one who's been impeached uh, for obstructing justice uh, in this country. He's the one who has friends who are in jail. You know, he uh, uh, Roger Stone's in jail. Michael Flynn's in jail. Roger Cohen. Uh, Michael Cohen is in jail. And Joy, I need you to clear up one thing. You were not calling the president a domestic terrorist. You were just saying that his his take on this is is a little crazier than you thought. Is that right? Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm not calling anybody names like he does. It's just that it seems ironic that he would be calling people domestic terrorists. What she's referring to is Trump blasting. Now we see what's unfolding in Seattle. This, to me, is sad. You know, you see groups of people now that have literally commandeered entire areas of a city, including a police department that they've taken over. And what is the the governor is he calling in the National Guard? Is he taking control? I yet to see it. But that's now happening. All of these curfews that are called. It's not being enforced again. We're at a point now where almost 800 police officers after being pelted with bottles and rocks and bricks and Molotov cocktails, uh, you know, they don't get stopped. And if you arrest them, for example, even in the state like New York, you, you catch them throwing a Molotov cocktail or a brick at a cop. Well, the no bail rule uh, signed by the governor of New York, just like the stupid covid mandate for nursing homes and long term elderly facilities. Well, guess what? You know what? They get back on on the street in like seconds. This is madness to me. And all of that's at stake here. You know, it's free market capitalism versus socialism. You think of how profound that everything's free. How did Obamacare work out? Keep your doctor, your plan and pay less. And, you know, dumping cargo uh, planes full of uh, cash and other currency on the on the tarmac for mullahs in Iran. Please be nice to us. Okay, that's insane, too. Um, we've got one thing held after another, but you could literally say here that it's like Seattle is now being held hostage and I don't see anybody doing a thing about it to restore order. You know, all these years we've seen decades of democratic rule in all of these big cities. And, you know, I've said it so many times, how many more Mondays do we have to come in and find out how many people were shot in the city of Chicago before somebody realizes we need to urgently get in there, restore order and protect our fellow Americans. And nobody seems to ever be held accountable. And even Barack Obama was his home city, did mention it, you know, very rarely. Uh, and, and he could have done any one of a million things to help his own home city. And I think the people deserve that. Uh, you know, we love our kids. I think they have to be able to live in a safe uh, environment in their community. You love your kids. You don't spend more per capita on education only to come in 37th. In terms of uh, results, H- how do you institutionalize failure at that level? The numbers come in every year, and nobody seems to bat an eyelash. I'd like to solve those problems. By the way, uh, props today to Charles Barkley ripping the anti-cop uh, protest, saying that 
Most police do a fantastic job. By the way, does anyone want to be a cop today? After one presidential candidate pretty much says that a lot of you are racist. You know, you know how deflating that is for the 99% that go out. They don't get paid a lot of money and they put their lives on the line. And their mission is to protect and serve their communities. And every cop I know is appalled and shocked and and absolutely outraged over the knee and the neck of George Floyd resulting in his death. Um, yeah, it's not an easy environment right now for cops either. You have, you know, all of this madness literally unfolding before our very eyes. And the last thing I'm going to say that I think is just true is that I don't even think the events that that will define completely what we know on November 4th of this year, 146 days from now, I don't even think they it's fully happened yet. That's, you know, that's that's just a fact. And I think anyone that says they do is not being honest. All right, as we roll along, 800-941-SEAN, if you want to be a part of this extravaganza. Two bits of information. Again, I'm not really focused that much on polling right now. I, I just I just don't trust it. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think all of the issues, you know, for example, this race is probably going to look a lot different in 145 days because we're going to know how far the economy has come back. Uh, we are going to know things, and I have my feelings as to what it's going to be. I, I believe probably that V recovery, especially once you begin the third quarter, July, August, September, I think that's going to happen. Um, so I'm looking at that. And anecdotally, I'm looking at the Rasmussen report. This was his June 5th survey that it showed that the president's approval rating among African-American voters has risen to 40 percent. That is a huge number. I think he got 8 percent of the African-American vote in 2016. Now, what would the reasons be? I, I would argue that probably the issues of law and order resonate with every community in the country. I think that's universal. Uh, Democrats, I think I also believe that instinctively people that live in majority minority areas that have high rates of crime, for example, Chicago uh, or other big cities, they realize Democrats have not gotten the job done after decades of Democratic rule and promises. And the same would go with the educational system. And I think they also I think everybody's paid attention to the fact that we've had record low unemployment pre-coronavirus for African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, women in the workplace, youth unemployment, African-American youth unemployment. I think that means a lot. So if there's anywhere near this now, remember, Rasmussen, if, if they're now still as accurate, Scott Rasmussen, as he was in 2016, well, the the you know, we are now seeing something emerging that we got to pay attention to. Here's one other anecdote. Um, I may not have, to have time to get this in. All right. Polls in Georgia now show. Now, if you look at the real clear politics average, the President Trump has a, a slight 1.5% lead, 45.5 to 44% win over Biden. But I'll get into more details when we get back. The president so far, uh, according to Georgia primary results, he got 140,000 more votes than Joe Biden. And Nobody needed to vote for him in Georgia. Um, that's a big deal. That would be more than every Democratic candidate, all their numbers combined. All right. Thanks, Scott. Shannon, 25 till the top of the hour, 800-941. Sean, you want to be a part of the program. By the way, we have a lot of news on the deep state. We now have criminal referrals from Congress going out to specific individuals. And we now have notes and emails from July and August of 2016 
that show that the FBI absolutely knew from their earliest dealings with Hillary Clinton's bought and paid for Russian dossier author, Christopher Steele, that he was uh, and his Russian research project on Trump was all tied to Hillary Clinton and the DNC. And by the way, the FISA court was never told. And Director Ray hasn't turned those over yet to the Senate. And he's slow walking all of that evidence as it continues from inside the bureau. House GOP is make they're making as many as 10 criminal referrals in the next few days for false testimony, illegal leaking, alleged misconduct in the Flynn and Crossfire Hurricane slash Razor probes. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence is going to declassify uh, now the the annex to the CIA, the Intelligence uh, Community's Assessment. Uh, we believe it'll probably show that the FBI signed off on the finding that the Steele dossier was unverified, even as it was represented to the FISA court and Steele information was verified. Now, that's interesting, too, because then we now have, based on the release of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, uh, the interviews that they did, Andrew McCabe saying, nah, there's no dossier, then there would be absolutely positively no FISA warrant. And what did Devin Nunes said? That's exactly what he said in the Nunes memo, uh, the Grassley-Graham memo. And that was the bulk of the information was the dirty, bought and paid for, now debunked, always unverifiable uh, dirty dossier. uh, And they used it all anyway. Now, that means that I got to tell you something here that that means this was a level of conspiracy and crimes committed at the highest levels of our FBI within our Department of Justice. You know, now it all becomes down a matter to, all right, who's going to be held criminally liable in all of this? Uh, Inspector General Horowitz absolutely never had the ability to go beyond the confines of the Department of Justice and the FBI, but the Attorney General, that's why there was almost instant, um, an instant rebuttal in terms of, well, the Inspector General, through his limited purview, Uh, Doesn't know as much as I do. And that was confirmed by A.G. Barr this week in terms of the what the A.G. knows, because the Durham probe doesn't have the constraints of the inspector general probe. Another problem, too, for the I.G., that would be Horowitz, is that, well, he didn't have the ability to legally convene grand juries and press charges. He only put referrals forward that were heretofore just ignored, probably because. They were all knowing, I'm I'm guessing now at this point, I I would believe the strategy was, yeah, that's the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, We're going after the full picture of what actually happened. And basically what happened is everything that I told you for three years and our ensemble cast of investigative reporters is absolutely true. What the mob and the media reported, Russia, 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 and what they pushed was absolutely false. And Adam Schiff is even a bigger liar than we ever dreamed of because We now see the testimony that he was trying to hide forever of people going before the House Intelligence Committee and saying the exact opposite of what he would then go out and say publicly. And that just goes to the highest levels within the FBI. And Rod Rosenstein's testimony blew the blew the lid off of a lot of that, too. Knowing what he knows now. No, he wouldn't have signed the fourth FISA warrant application. Uh, No, he shouldn't have had a special counsel at all. And they all knew from the beginning when it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you got, you know, a team of Trump haters 
appointed by Robert Mueller. And really, we learned much later that he had no clue. He didn't even know what Fusion GPS was. That was not a trick question either. He didn't know that Jeannie Ray was Hillary Clinton's attorney. And and the pit bull, uh, Andrew Weissman, was allowed to go free in spite of his history of, as chronicled in Sidney Powell's book, License to Lie, uh, prosecutorial mis- uh, misconduct in his part, abuse of power. Now, I guess he's one of these cable channels contributors, just like Lisa Page is a contributor, just like Clapper's a contributor, just like Brennan is a contributor, uh, just like you have people getting Pulitzer Prizes in the mob and the media, even though we now know they were all wrong. And are they ever going to correct the record? I doubt it. Uh, that would be the single best example of just how corrupt the mob and the media has become. But we see it every day unfolding before our very eyes. You know, the president to win in 145 days, he's got a lot of forces against him. Not the least of which, you know, I've never seen somebody within the Oval Office have that many people literally, you know, just stabbing them in the back regularly. And we just, we, you know, we hail them as heroes. Even non-whistleblowers here say whistleblowers. And yeah, it brought us to the point of, you know, you know, ignoring quid pro quo Joe Zero experience Hunter and an innocent phone call with the president and president-elected Ukraine uh, where there was no quid pro quo, you know, but we'll impeach him for it anyway. I mean, things are that bad. Anyway, back to this anecdotal information that I have here. It's, all right, so the Ju- July 5th, I'm sorry, June 5th Rasmussen survey had the president's approval rating among African-Americans of 40%. Okay, if that is anywhere near truth, then that means we got we have potentially here a seismic shift demographically. Remember, all polls are are broken down demographically. We know all know that Democrats always use identity politics, um, and I would argue that there are real good reasons for it. And that first one being in all of these big cities. Well, we watched their handling of the coronavirus. It was an unmitigated disaster in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Michigan. You know, these executive orders forcing COVID-19 patients into nursing homes when they were saying we do not have the capability of dealing with this. That was a colossal error. And we lost, you know, how many tens of thousands of people because of that horrific governance We saw that none of these governors had any preparation for pandemics, which is pretty unforgivable in New York, considering there was a health care task force in November of 2015 that said, yeah, you're going to be shy 15,783 ventilators. Uh, You need to get it because also in that report, they say the federal government will not be able to provide them for you or that the city of New York individually separately was told they will need 10,000 on their own. And they bought 500 under Bloomberg. Then they apparently didn't maintain them. Then they sold them to somebody we have no idea at auction. Then I think the American people are also, you know, now they're looking at these states and the chaos and the rioting and the looting and the arson, and nobody's paying attention to any of uh, these curfews that they're putting in place. You have these agitators mixing themselves among peaceful protesters, and we see the, the chaos, the havoc, and they not only are not fixing it themselves, but they're rejecting any and all attempts by the president to offer them the help to get control of city streets. So I would imagine every American probably has the same feeling. They're not feeling as safe as they'd like to be. And that now is crescendoing in 
Seattle, where now blocks of Seattle have been taken over. That's a pretty scary scenario for the country. And I think most people, and I think people also look at decades of Democratic rule in the education department. You know, how is it we've gone this long with so many thousands of people shot and killed in Chicago and not a finger is lifted? Um, all of the failures of big cities run by Democrats for decades in terms of education, I see, think they see that failure. Now, also anecdotally, I was talking about this going into the break. So if you look at the polls in Georgia right now, it shows that the race is tight between President Trump and forgetful Joe. And the president has 45.5% last eight surveys, gives him a slight lead over Biden, 45.5 to 44. Now, we did have the primary Tuesday night. That means people actually voting. You know, you always try to get likely voters in surveys versus people that, meh, I don't know if I'm going to vote or not vote. Um, anyway, so these are people that actually voted. You get a whole different picture. Um, Newsweek reported that President Trump has so far received over 140,000 more votes in the Georgia primary than the former vice president. We only have 70 percent of the precincts now reporting so far for the GOP. Well, Trump gained a pretty whopping 698,825 votes compared to just 552,253 for Biden. Um, and what's more amazing about that, according to NBC, is that, you know, this actually meant something. Now, granted, it's a fait accompli in terms of Joe Biden is the candidate. But, you know, but it was more so for the president. It was totally uncontested. Nobody had to go out and vote for President Trump in Georgia. And the president also received more votes than all of the Democratic candidates combined. That includes Bernie Sanders. He got over 67,000 votes. Elizabeth Warren, who received nearly 12,000 votes, as well as all the other candidates who dropped out of the race months ago, but whose names were still on the ballot. And the president also outperformed uh, former President Barack Obama's vote totals from the 2012 Georgia primary. Obama, in that case, was running unopposed. And in the state, he got 139,000 votes, over 500,000 fewer than what Donald Trump got this time. Similar situation. So certainly, I think that's that's evidence that the support for the president is pretty strong and that people, you know, that I think that a lot of people see the fundamental unfairness. They also see the pre-coronavirus numbers in terms of the economy, record low unemployment, as we've discussed with, you know, every every single demographic group in the country. And then we got Joe hiding in a basement and then we have all this unrest and no, but none of these, you know, none of these big state Democratic governors, city mayors are capable or showing any capability or even any desire to restore order. I think the case can be made that the city of Seattle now has uh, literally uh, city blocks being held hostage. You can't take how many how many more police precincts are we going to allow people to take over or burn to the ground? How many more officers? We're nearly at 800 now are going to have go through injuries because of bottles and rocks and bricks and Molotov cocktails thrown at them. We've already had a, a number of people die over 20, a number of them police officers. We have other police officers. One guy shot in the back of the head in Vegas. Well, he might have to be on a ventilator for the rest of his life, according to some reports. The Epic Times is pointing out 
People with guns are checking the ID of individuals trying to enter the area in Seattle, now taken over by far-left activists and groups like Antifa, or Antifa, as some like to say, according to the Seattle Police Department. Quote, we have been hearing from community members that they have been subjected to barricades set up by the protesters and some armed individuals running them as checkpoints into the neighborhood. Well, none of this is a good thing. Uh, And they go on to say, according to the assistant chief, while they have a constitutionally protected right to bear arms and while Washington is an open carry state, there's no legal right for those arms to be used to intimidate community members. But honestly, they don't really know because they're not there. The police have ceded that ground to the protesters. Police uh, officials also have heard of businesses and citizens being asked to pay a a fee to operate in the area, which is known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Well, that also includes 500 residences, 500 homes. Now, that obviously would be a crime if that is happening, if that turns out to be true. Anyone feeling threatened, intimidated or extorted, you know, the assistant chief is saying she's saying call 911. Does that mean they're willing to go in and help the people that might need help? Well, that wasn't quite addressed. So you have the takeover of the entire area completed after the police abandoned their police department's east precinct because of threats that it would be burned down. And because the building is connected to apartment buildings and businesses, officials then made the choice that they're going to board it up and secure it before relocating officers that are now being held outside the perimeter of the area that they have now taken over. Video footage is showing assaults and other crimes taking place within this autonomous zone. Footage filmed by a local rapper showing a man being assaulted for putting graffiti on an outdoor wall. And the police spokesperson saying, you know, police want to return to normal operations which would improve response times and capabilities within the neighborhood, but there's no set plan on how to return yet. Where's the National Guard? Where is the request for help from the president? Because the governor has to actually ask that, just like they could have been asking for it, and the president's been begging them to ask um, all across the, you know, all across these big cities. They refuse to take any help. And then you have the, you know, what Tom Cotton wrote about that was apparently not even be allowed to be discussed. I actually don't believe only under the worst conditions do you want to invoke the Insurrection Act. The president has full constitutional authority to do so, and he's chosen not to do it. People say all the time, oh, we got to get the vice president out of the basement. He's fine in the basement. <laughs> two people see him a day, his two body people. That's it. And let Trump keep doing what Trump's doing. It's hard for the vice president to break through. You know, the rapidly rising uh, um, uh, in with, uh, with uh, I don't know, uh, I'm beginning to get bored by my own talk here. I came back from law school when Dr. King was assassinated. And when he came, I came back, my city is the only city in America occupied by the National Guard since Reconstruction because a significant portion was burned to the ground. I came back, had a job with a good law firm, and I quit and became a public defender. But even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact that George Floyd's mm-hmm. death did. All right, hour two, Sean Hannity show. Those comments uh, made by Biden, uh, even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact of George that George Floyd's death did. 
Um, and then him saying, I'm bored by my own talking. And, of course, Terry McAuliffe saying, he's just fine being in the basement. He only sees two people a day. It's perfect. That's, that is the perfect candidate, especially Joe, the forgetful one who puts his foot in his mouth every five seconds. Now, I may, may sound a little hypocritical here by saying, well, I don't believe polls at this point. And I don't even know if we know exactly what the actual issues are that will propel uh, people to the polls uh, in 145 days. I don't think anybody can accurately in any way, shape, manner or form predict all of that. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, the anecdotal evidence that I shared with you from Newsweek in the last hour about how many people showed up in Georgia to vote for him versus the polls, the last eight of them just having Trump up uh, by 45, uh, 45, five to 44 over Biden. And then you see, you know, record shattering People going to the polls, he gets more people in a primary vote uncontested than all the Democratic candidates combined. Anecdotally, is that something that we can look at? Um, I think it's I think it's absolutely something. If the June 5th Rasmussen poll is true, and that being that the president has a 40 percent approval rating among African-Americans, uh, that would be fairly dramatic. Also, anyway, we bring in our pollsters, our experts uh, John McLaughlin, uh, Matt Towery, and Scott Rasmussen. Scott, let me first, I mentioned your poll on June 5th. Uh, have you updated that particular demographic, African-Americans, because you had the president at a 40% yeah. approval rating with them? Well, actually, Sean, that was my old company. You know, I left there seven years ago. So my, my polling does not show the president uh, doing that well among African-Americans. He's about uh, 15% among African-Americans in terms well, of 15 is almost double what he got in 2016. And that's yeah. your most recent, by I the way, how do you, how do you sell your company with your name on it? And you still have another polling company. It's a little <laughs> odd. Well, you know, I, there's a passage of time in between. You sit out for a non-compete and you move on. It does create a little bit of confusion. Uh, sorry about that, but, uh, but I'm very happy with the work I'm doing now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something, that I, I don't comment on the polls by my old firm. I just comment on the work I do. Okay. Now, let me ask you, John McLaughlin, because you had an interesting memo to the President Trump, skewed okay. media polls. Uh, and then I'll get Matt and Scott's take on it. Tell us, the, give us a summary of that. Well, the summary, it's on our website on McLaughlinOnline.com. And the president tweeted. By the way, does out, anyone else uh, own your name and also another polling company that can confuse <laughs> us even further? But go ahead. No, not right now, but they wouldn't pay as much for my name as Scott Gottfried. <laughs> so, but the, uh, I'm sure. But the, uh, and, and judging from the reaction of the liberals who have attacked us for this memo, like even Chris Cuomo attacking us on CNN last night. Um, it, but but the, the media's got a plan here. They're trying, they see the same enthusiasm for the president. They see the same kind of numbers that we've had four years ago when they were all surprised when he won. We predicted it on your show that he was going to win. And now you've got the media put manufacturing polls to discourage us. On Sunday, NBC puts out a poll, 26% Republicans, followed by CNN the next day, 25% Republicans. What's important about that is the, on election day in 2016, when the president won election, certainly there were four points more Democrats out there than Republicans, but Republicans were 33%. And when the president gets over 90% of support from Republicans, every point we take in the president down in these polls where it's adults, they poll adults, 
represent over 220 million adults in the United States who are voting age population, but only 139 million voted. Well, they poll just registered voters. They don't screen for likely voters. So they're taking them down seven or eight points in their polls, and they're saying, oh, he, he can't win, he's getting blown away. And by the way, in that memo, I actually praise CBS. They're the only ones that did likely voter polls, and they had, the, they had the election of virtually dead heat in the country right now. So the media is playing this game to suppress the Republican vote, to su- suppress the Trump voter. And it's transparent. They did it four years ago. Now they're just trying to do it even more than they did four years ago. Matt Towery, you agree with that analysis? And, and do you agree with me that we don't really know what the issues are going to be in 145 days? I've got to believe, you know, what the recovery uh, numbers look like uh, in the third quarter. Those numbers will come out in October, just before the November 3rd election. I got to believe that's going to impact the economy. Also, you know, I, I think some other issues are emerging. I mean, you have an entire city, city blocks taken over. Um, you see 800 cops now about that number have been injured around the country and, and bottles and bricks and rocks and Molotov cocktails uh, thrown at them. We've had over 20 people die, including police officers in the aftermath of George Floyd's tragic death, unnecessary death and the, the shocking of the nation's conscience. Well, Matt? first of all, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with uh, with John um, in his analysis of these polls. We've said this many times on the air, but I want to say this about this election. We're at a point right now that's very critical for the Trump campaign. Whether you agree with these polls or not, the president is in decline. He has been in decline since he quit holding these updates on the coronavirus back in the middle of May. Once so you that believe ended, that's real? I believe it's I don't mean that he's in the decline in the sense that he's 10 points down, but he is simply he is certainly taking it right now from the media. And I think it's time the Trump campaign fight back and point out in their paid media the hypocritical nature of every single thing the media does right now. No one's going to say this. You can't get enough TV shows that they'll watch that can tell everyone the tweets can't be interpreted by anyone because there's no one there other than you and a few others to interpret them. There's got to be a story laid out about the hypocrisy of saying you can't go to church. Oh, but at the same time, you can gather in the streets and protest, uh, and the president can't carry a Bible uh, to a church across the street from the White House. Come on. The hypocrisy is unbelievable, and it's over and over and over again. And I think the campaign needs to start taking that to the public so the president can begin to get back on the right footing and then show the actions that he's brought and the deeds that he's done that have brought tremendous economic growth to this country, stability around the world. None of that can be heard until we get this thing righted, and only the campaign can write it. And imagine, add to that, I'd love your thoughts on it, Scott Rasmussen, because, you know, Terry McAuliffe, oh, I'm just fine with him being in his basement bunker. He only sees two people a day. Uh, well, that's a pretty unique uh, way to go about campaigning. Uh, your thoughts? Well, you know, first, I agree with Matt. Uh, I do. The president's numbers are in decline uh, or they were have been in decline. Uh, in my last polling showed him at a 41 percent job approval rate. But importantly, and, and this is something, you know, your comment about nobody knows what it's going to be like 145 days from now. Well, my last poll was conducted just before the jobs report comes out. We're in the field again right now. 
We'll see how much of an impact that had. What's really going to affect this election is the way that the U.S. reopens, the way the economy recovers, the way that society recovers. Uh, if the next jobs report is better than the last one, and the one after that is even stronger, and we appear to be surviving without another wave of the pandemic hitting us, uh, all of these numbers we're talking about today will just be ancient history because the president will be doing very well. As for Joe Biden, yeah, I think it's been very effective for him to have a low profile. I think the one thing that's really hurting him is he's not getting a chance to debate or practice debating with anybody. It would have been much easier to warm up with Bernie Sanders than to come out of the basement and have to debate Donald Trump uh, you know, on a national stage. I think that's going to be a problem for him uh, as well. So let's look at a crystal ball period here. Let's say, okay, what do we anticipate the economy is going to be? Well, you know, they were only off in their predictions. Well, every prediction and every model on coronavirus, but they're off in their predictions. uh, uh, Certainly nobody saw by 11 million. I mean, they thought it was going to be, what, 10 million uh, job loss. It ended up being a net gain of 2.5 million for May, John McLaughlin. That certainly gives me a lot of hope the economy's coming back. What impact does that have? If true, well, it's good. It's a positive impact. Like like Scott said, all these media polls that say say we're in decline don't have the effect of that. Plus, the Trump campaign did put up ads on that instantly on Friday that ran over the past week, and they have put up ads. Um, you, uh, Brad Parscal tweeted out today that saying basically that you now have Biden saying he won't he won't stop the Democrats from defunding the police or. The fact, reminding them that, too, that Biden voted for most favored nation status for China. And and he really helped ship hundreds of thousands of American jobs overseas. So this is a, this is now going to become a contrast election. And, and you're going to have a when you're thinking of the economy, the economic recovery, you're going to have Donald Trump, a proven jobs creator who's fighting to suspend the payroll tax and other things to create jobs versus Joe Biden, who wants to raise taxes and abolish the the energy industry in states like Pennsylvania that are going to cost us millions of jobs. So this 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 campaign is far from decided by any stretch because Biden's now going to come out of focus when we're trying to reopen the economy. And your thoughts, Matt Towery, and what, what you know, watching Democrats not only botch coronavirus, New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and New Jersey, then you see that you know. We have city blocks taken over and they can't restore order in New York. They can't do it in Washington. They can't do it in any of these liberal cities and maybe add in or factor in the decades rule of Democrats in big cities and their failure to restore uh, safe to create safe cities and educational uh, opportunities for their kids. Uh, Does that factor in? It does. But but we've got to remember one thing, at least for now. We don't know 100 and something days from now what we're going to be dealing with. Right now, Donald Trump is running not against Joe Biden. He's running against the media, a vicious media. That for Here's a great example, Sean. So we had the civil unrest and they covered it every day. And during that time period, no one cared about coronavirus. We, we were told it's better to be in the streets protesting than it is to worry about coronavirus that we heard it from experts in fact health experts signed a letter a thousand of them say better to be in the streets than coronavirus as soon as uh, mr floyd was laid to rest and we had elections on tuesday so nobody wanted to go to the streets and be accused of messing up the election the next day you get up and what's the headline coronavirus rising primarily in all the red states and all the interpretation that now we're going back into a second wave 
if the Trump campaign has got to take on the media that is not telling the truth and the Democrats who are hypocritical one day and hypocritical the next in different directions. By the way, I've got to take a break here. Oh, one Democratic, this is a Washington Examiner uh, uh, candidate, House candidate. Well, if people loot, so what? Burn it to the ground. Leading Democratic candidate, closely watched House race, you know, brushing off looting and arson occurring in this unrest. You know, what the hell? You got snipers on the roof for peaceful protest and march? Even if people loot, so what? Burn it to the ground, you know? If that's what it, it's going to take to fix our nation uh, in a live digital event shown to the Washington Examiner. Uh, this is Fort Worth, between Fort Worth and Dallas, the 24th Congressional District. All right, as we continue our pollsters, we don't have a lot of time this segment, but we have Greg Jarrett, John Solomon on the deep state. Breaking news there. Uh, John McLaughlin, Matt Towery, Scott Rasmussen. All right. Same question, and we have two minutes. Real quick. So how does this play out based on all the years all of you have been doing polling, and you are the three guys that predicted that Donald Trump would win in 2016? That's it. Not many people got that right. Scott. The way this plays out all depends on how successfully we reopen. I expect there is going to be a euphoria as people. It's more than the economy. When people get to go out again and, and feel like they've been let loose from house arrest, there's going to be a euphoria sweeping the nation. And as long as that happens, uh, and without any, uh, you know, out recurrence of the coronavirus, the president will be reelected. And in fact, if it goes very well, he could win a majority of the popular vote. Okay, Matt Towery. Okay, I've said Donald Trump would win in 2016. I've been saying it on your show for two years. Uh, right now, I'm undecided. Does that tell you something? I'm concerned. Yeah. So I think what we need to do is lay a predicate down. The average person doesn't watch uh, television news. The average person just sees little bits and snippets of these voters. And until the, the, we can get them to understand the, the, the very hypocritical and unfair world that Donald Trump himself is living in, and they start to understand it, we're going to have a hard time crawling out of this hole. Uh, and your take, John McLaughlin. Uh, right now, it's unbelievable what the president has faced. Global pandemic, uh, unemployment at the level that you haven't seen since the Depression. And uh, now you get this looting and rioting. And you know what? Donald Trump, his base is rock solid with him. He's still with him. We're running like we're the underdog. We're behind. The media is biased, and they're just showing us. That's why people have to come to your show to get the truth. But Donald Trump, as Scott said, as the economy recovers, as the country reopens, and they see Donald Trump fighting for them personally once again, we can get reelected, but we can't take it for granted right now. We've got I don't real take any election for I don't take any election for granted. You gotta act like you're a touchdown down two minute drill, no timeouts, and you need the touchdown cross the plane and the extra point to win. That's how I feel. I believe, and all of us believe that if the Republican Party had paid Mr. Steele through an organization money to dig up dirt on Hillary Clinton and he used a Russian to create a bunch of garbage that was used to get a warrant against a Clinton campaign operative, you'd have a little different view of this. That you would be raising holy hell and all your friends in the media would be front page news everywhere. Treason. But it's Trump, it's okay, as long as you're out to get somebody you need to get, damn the way you do it. 
Well, this committee is not going to accept that standard, my friend. This committee looked at everything you wanted us to look at in terms of Russian behavior. Did Russia interfere? You better believe they did. Will they do it again? Yes, they will. Was this the Ukrainians? No, it was the Russians who stole the emails. It was the Russians who have divided the American people in terms of the 2016 campaign. But it wasn't the Russians, my friend, who withheld information from the FISA court keeping uh, Carter Page's life turned upside down. It wasn't the Russians who refused to tell the court that the underlying dossier that was a crucial to the Carter Page warrant was a bunch of garbage. It wasn't the Russians who manipulated an email to keep getting a warrant against American citizens. It wasn't the Russians who withheld information from the court about General Flynn that they were setting him up and out to get him. It was the Department of Justice. It was the FBI. It was people who hated Trump. If people had a political bias, an agenda to destroy him before he was elected and after he was elected. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. And if you want people subpoenaed, I will certainly listen to what you got to say. But this stinks. This is a sad episode in the history of the FBI. There was no there there in August 2017. And it may not bother you, but it bothers us. And I hope it will bother the American people and we'll fix it. Before any application was submitted to the court, a senior department official, either the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, or the assistant attorney general for national security, met with national security division supervisors to ensure that the application set forth a valid legal and factual basis. Ultimately, each application was submitted to a federal judge who decided whether it set forth probable cause that justified the issuance of a warrant. Every application that I approved appeared to be justified based on the facts it alleged. And the FBI was supposed to be following protocols to ensure that every fact was verified. But investigative reviews published by the Inspector General in December 2019 and March of 2020, those investigative reviews revealed that the FBI was not following the protocols and that significant errors appeared in applications filed in connection with the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. You signed a warrant application in June of, uh, I think, 2017 to get the uh, Carter Page warrant renewed. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, have you looked at the Horowitz report? Yes, I have. I have it with me, Senator. If you knew then what you know now, would you have signed the warrant application? No, I would not. Okay. And the reason you wouldn't have is because Mr. Horowitz found that exculpatory information was withheld from the court. Is that correct? Among other reasons, yes. Yeah, sir. and somebody actually altered an email. Correct. Right. right. I've publicly made clear that this does not uh, involve uh, looking at President Obama or, uh, or Vice President Biden. I think the people that we're looking at are not uh, uh, at that level. And I think... Uh, what names we would be familiar with? Some of them. You know, here's the thing. For the first time in American history, police organizations and the uh, national security organizations were used to spy on a campaign. And there was no basis for it. And the media largely drove that. And all kinds of sensational claims were being made about the president that could have affected the election. And then later on in his administration, there were actions taken that really appear to be efforts to sabotage uh, his campaign. And that has to be looked at. And if people want to say that I'm political because I am looking at those potential abuses of power, so be it. But that's the job of the attorney general. 
You mentioned the Flynn case. You're in the process of trying to dismiss that charge, the, the charges, yet the judge, Judge Sullivan, continues on and has now a shadow prosecutor and making a case that it should continue. The argument is that uh, it's always been understood that decisions, whether to pursue an individual through the prosecution process or holding them criminally accountable, is vested in the executive branch and uh, not the courts. Uh, and he is essentially, in our view, trying to set himself up as an alternative prosecutor. And so have you seen anything like this before? I'm not aware of anything like this before, and I think that's why uh, this is not being argued at the appellate stage in the District of Columbia. All right. Incredible new developments. Deep State. Glad you're with us. Hour two. Sean Hannity show. Eight hundred nine four one. Sean, you want to be a part of the program. First, it was Rod Rosenstein and his blockbuster testimony. What is it? Yeah, knowing what I know now, the fourth FISA application, the third renewal application that I signed, yeah, I wouldn't have signed that today. And uh, now we're learning from John Solomon that they actually knew much earlier than anybody knew that the dossier was total and complete BS. They knew they were given multiple warnings even before the first one was signed in October of 2016. They went with it anyway. And then the subsource finally interviewed in January 2017. The subsource said, no, this is only bar talk. Um, then you listen to what, in fact, they're saying here. What, what What is the attorney general saying? Yeah, all of this has happened. We have the IG report. Rod Rosenstein wouldn't have gone forward with any of this. He's still got a lot of questions to answer for. Now the House is making numerous referrals as it relates to those that we only recently learned Uh, Their testimony in the House Intelligence Committee, which, by the way, proved that Adam Schiff is a bigger liar than we ever ever knew, because uh, all of these officials, many of them anyway, were saying, no, there's no evidence of any collusion. And he'd go out that same day or night on MSDNC or fake news CNN or leak to the New York Toilet Paper Times or the Washington Compost. uh, Then, in fact, oh, we have all the evidence you could ever want, needed or at all that proves all of this is true. Never. None of it was true. Never was. Three years We then put the country through absolute hell, and there was no need. Uh, Anyway, joining us now, uh, we have John Solomon, investigative reporter. He's been on this since March, actually before that, of 2017, when we started getting into the illegal surveillance, unmasking, leaking raw intelligence. And Greg Jarrett, Fox News uh, legal analyst, author of two best-selling books, The Russia Hoax and Witch Hunt, on this very topic. Uh, John, let's start with the news and let's start with you. Yeah, two breaking news stories. So first off, uh, just a few hours ago, the Office of Director of National Intelligence declassified what is known as Annex A, the classified section, uh, classified section of the intelligence community assessment about Russia interference in the election. And what this annex shows is that there was agreement between the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, the intelligence community, that the Steele dossier was politically sensitive, mostly uncorroborated, and that it came from a man that the intelligence community knew had been leaking to the news media the evidence he was sharing with the FBI. In other words, two months after the FBI had gone to a FISA court and uh, represented that the uh, Steele dossier had been verified and therefore good evidence to support a FISA warrant against Carter Page, the intelligence community concluded it was unverified, coming from a leaking uh, source who uh, had politically sensitive information, meaning it was, it was in the realm of elections as opposed to intelligence. 
Uh, this is damning. I mean, the FBI signed off on that intelligence assessment in one uh, presenting the Steele dossier one way and then signed it off in an entirely different way before the FISA court. Unbelievable. Greg Jarrett, let's now get into the legality and who's in jeopardy, because I know that both of you are a little bit skittish on whether or not you thought at different times that those that did all of this and abused power involved in corruption would ever be held accountable. But it's sounding more and looking more every day like there's no way of avoiding some type of the, the legal ramifications of what it is all these people did. And I think some of the principal people, uh, when Barr said these are uh, people whose names with which you are familiar, may well have been, and it should be, people like James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok. I mean, these are the three principal people um, who launched an investigation in 2016 without any evidence. Then they spied on the campaign by lying to the court in their warrant applications. Uh, and then they set up and framed, uh, you know, General Michael Flynn. And together with Rod Rosenstein, those three then engineered the appointment of a special counsel without a legal predicate in violation of federal regulations. So does that constitute a conspiracy to defraud? Is it obstruction of justice? Uh, Is it deprivation of rights under color of law? I say it's all three of those felonies. So name names. Well, Comey, McCabe, uh, Peter Strzok, and, uh, you know, to some extent, Rod Rosenstein, who, you know, pretended he was Sergeant Schultz from the Hogan's Hero television show, I know nothing, I see nothing, I heard nothing. Rosenstein either knew or should have known, and that means he was either incompetent or corrupt. Uh, all I see here, you know, I, 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 there's so much going on in the world right now. And the media has ignored this and gotten it all wrong from the very beginning, John Solomon. But yet, you know, you look at this, and any way you look at it, from my perspective, is you had a few people uh, literally involved in an attempted coup of a, well, first to stop a candidate from being elected, but with an insurance policy, using the, the power of surveillance and the power that comes with being on the seventh floor, for example, and tried to undermine and undo an election and take out a duly elected president. Is that what you see? Because that's what I see. Listen, the attorney general sees it. He, he, he spoke specifically of an effort to sabotage the president. That's a very strong word coming from the top law enforcement officer in the land. And I think when you take the complete body of evidence of what we now know, including new stuff I reported last night, last night I reported that there are documents from July of 16 showing the FBI knew immediately, the first time they talked to Christopher Steele, this was a Hillary Clinton research opposition project. And they hide that from the courts. They developed probably the insurance policy because they knew if Steele fell apart, if it ever got exposed, what was going on, they needed something else. It sure looks like an effort to sabotage both the president's campaign and then his early presidency. And, and, and this has been the point of what we've all been saying for three plus years. You know, and here's the saddest part of it. You, you know, we all know there's another side to this. There actually was Russian interference. There was a Russian disinformation campaign on the other side. And that is right. a bought and paid for Russian dirty dossier with Russian misinformation on it that the other candidate was actually paying for. I mean, it's probably got to go down. I guess maybe it'll be studied eventually as the greatest psych ops uh, operation ever in the history of mankind, right? Well, the greatest mass delusion in American political history. Trump never colluded with Russia, but 
Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC did. They, and they did it with Ukraine, did they not? That, by that's right. by having a DNC representative go to the Ukrainian embassy. Exactly. They they were disseminating knowingly false information. And in my book two years ago, I quoted a Russian expert who said this is clearly Russian disinformation. And I argued that all you have to do is read the dossier itself. It is laughable on its face. And the FBI knew this from the very beginning. They didn't care. They used it as a pretext to launch an investigation of Trump to sabotage him. Unbelievable. So at the end of the day now, will the American people know the truth? And will these people be held accountable? In other words, like, for example, the inspector general had referrals, John Solomon. But OK, now, number one, his investigation only had, could be within the confines of the Department of Justice. He didn't have the ability to to convene a grand jury. He didn't have the ability to indict people. He did issue the referrals. They declined, you know, prosecution in terms of a number of issues. And on the other hand, we watch everything that happens to Manafort and Cohn and and Roger Stone and Papadopoulos. And then, of course, the president, too. And they get all scot-free in this. And, you know, I, I, I just I'm hard. I'm having a hard time understanding how our constitutional system of governance, which is the foundation of all of our rule of law, is as actually can work if you don't have equal justice under the law and equal application of our laws. Yeah, listen, that, that's it. everywhere I go when I talk to people, that is the single biggest concern they have, that there's been two justices of system going along. I feel like, based on the reporting I've done over the last month particularly, that the Justice Department is zeroing in on a small number of key players, and they're really bearing down on them. They're really gathering evidence, and that there could be some really significant accountability in the next few weeks uh, that, that it could play out in the court system. If not, you played that impassioned clip from uh, uh, Senator Graham and Senator Johnson and Senator Grassley. They're all working to have hearings. We're going to know the whole story by September. The real question is how many people get punished for it. I think it'll be a small number, but I think it'll be a significant punishment. All right, John Solomon and Greg Jarrett. You know what? You guys dug hard. You did the work the mob and the media would not do. And you got the truth to the American people. Now it's now it's now we see what the Department of Justice does with it. But you guys did your job. But other people got Pulitzers for getting the story wrong. It's an amazing society we live in. Stay right here for our final news roundup and information overload. Yes, I mean the most important thing, unfortunately, the report of the National Guardsmen being infected is certainly disturbing, but is not surprising. Uh, the issue of physical separation is important. Masks can help, but it's masks plus physical separation. And when you get congregations like we saw with the demonstrations, as we have said, myself and other health officials, that's taking a risk. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is just an example of the kinds of things we were concerned about. So I wouldn't be surprised that members of the congregation that were there demonstrating could also be infected. Today, I'd like to take a minute to outline some of the lessons that we've learned to date. Perhaps the most significant takeaway so far is that more freedom, not more government, is the answer. And while freedom alone won't solve all of our problems, it does present a better path towards where we want to go. Freedom is a better friend of true science than government-centered and government-controlled science. Freedom, not government, is a best friend of innovation. Freedom focuses our politics on persuasion, 
and the intellectual strength of our positions, not on control, coercion, or the heavy hand of government. And if someone is interested in the common good in all its iterations and complexities, freedom is the one and the only choice. Now my approach to this virus was to provide South Dakotans with all the information that I could and then trust them to exercise their freedom to make the best decision for themselves and for their families. We took a unique path. We haven't locked people up. We didn't force businesses or churches to close or order a statewide shelter in place. In return, the mainstream media has spent many hours and nearly endless column inches attacking me for that. All right, that is Governor uh, Christy Nome, South uh, Dakota. You know, we now have, you know, it's it's funny, social distancing, wear the mask, wear the mask, social distancing. Then in come protesters, and including not just the peaceful protesters, but those that have been violent. Oh, uh, no need to talk about social distancing anymore. Or uh, We see that not everybody's wearing a mask and all the social distance shutdown warriors like uh, Governor Whitless Whitmer. Uh, unbelievable. We can't have cutting the grass, but she'll go out and protest and uh without any social distancing that that's really truly completely leading by example uh public health officials and now right now are saying that social justice matters more than social distancing after telling americans to stay inside for months and we shut down the entire economy of the free world in the process of doing that and of course all of the models were wrong and of course all of the predictions were wrong and all of the advice have flipped and flopped and flailed all over the place. And uh, now we have, for example, Dr. Fauci warning, well, this is the perfect setup for a second coronavirus uh, peak. You know, don't wear masks, wear masks. Uh, I, I mean, everybody's changed all over the place. Then we find out the real one of the we, we found out some of the dumbest things that were done in the process of this, like New York an executive order of March 28th that sent COVID-19 patients into the nursing homes uh, when they weren't prepared for them. That was dumb. It was dumb that the New Jersey governors and the Pennsylvania governor and the governor of Michigan made that these all these dumb decisions because that's where tens of thousands of deaths occurred that, you know, by not protecting the most vulnerable, those susceptible you know, even though nursing home owners were saying, do not do this, we are not prepared for this. And all the while, ignoring the fact that the president not only built these hospital beds, some 3,000 of them not used just in New York City alone between the Navy hospital ship Comfort and the Javits Center. There were other hospitals built. They were all manned by the president. All the equipment sent by the president, every ventilator, every respirator, every uh, shield, all the gloves and all the gowns and all the hydroxychloroquine that anybody and everybody would have wanted or needed. But of course, you can't even get consensus on that. Um, so those, those hospital beds remained empty. Let's send them into the nursing homes. Well, the president not only manned them, built them, gave all the equipment, then he literally converted them to be able to take on COVID-19 patients, which actually meant for him he had to change out the entire ve ventilation systems of both the ship, hospital ship, and the Javits Center. But he did it. The beds were there. The beds weren't used. Um, it's madness. And you see ver next to little or zero credit ever given to the president. You know, Ron DeSantis, he got beat up, you know, because kids were on spring break. Well, the one thing that remained true was we have to protect the elderly. 
the those with compromised immune systems and underlying illnesses. That's what that was about. Anyway, 800-941-SEAN, toll-free number. Uh, Governor Christy Nome, South Dakota, joins us now. Governor, uh, first let's talk about Mount Rushmore, 4th of July, and I guess how many people already have tried to get tickets to this event and how many can you hold? I, I heard the demand was through the roof. Oh, my goodness, Sean. Yeah, it sure was. The National Park Service ran a lottery system uh, through their website for one weekend. I think it was open for three days. And over 125,000 people registered to be eligible for the lottery drawing for 7,400 tickets. So, you know, that was just in three days. If it was something that continued to be open, there probably would be a lot more people than that. But unfortunately, we only have room on site for 7,400 people. So that's what we're giving out tickets to. But obviously, people will be all over the Black Hills watching. Uh, it'll be quite a show. Uh, sounds amazing. So what, what what is the grand total capacity? Well, at the actual National Memorial is 7,400 tickets available. Right. There's two different areas where people will be able to see the program, watch the president give a speech. Uh, the Air Force Band will be there. We have quite a lineup of VIPs and individuals that are coming in to be a part of this. And uh, But we're having watch parties all over the Black Hills as well with a big jumbo a Tron TVs in different communities and towns where people can watch the program and then step outside and still watch the fireworks. Years and years ago, I'd been to Mount Rushmore only once, and my son was out there playing a tournament of some kind, and uh, we went there, obviously. I just, I, I, when you see it up close, it, it just takes your breath away. It's amazing. Oh, um, yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. It's going to be on July 3rd, the night before the 4th. So right. when everybody wakes up the morning of the 4th, they'll be able to see uh, the spectacular night that was had welcoming in uh, America. You, you want to have some fun with the media mob? Say, yeah, we're thinking of adding Donald Trump to Mount Rushmore. Just just do it for fun <laughs> as a joke. You know, that, that, that'll yeah, they, you watch they, it. You talk about the media uh, mob that hates them. They'll bubble and fizz like Alka-Seltzer and water. And all oh the steam, will, that'll be enough fireworks in their own brains that would light up Mount Rushmore for like 10 years. Um, That's exactly. Because, yep. And they're so humorless, they probably wouldn't even get it, the joke if you were kidding. Uh, <laughs> let me go to this whole issue of COVID and the protests. Um, I think, you know, it's very interesting how you handled it. You couldn't quite do it the same way in New York, but, you know, all these bad decisions of sending COVID patients into nursing homes and long-term elderly care facilities. Uh, Ron DeSantis, he protected the elderly in Florida. Uh, you were warning your citizens, South Dakota, every day um, to be wise and smart, but you didn't get all oppressive and say you can't cut the lawn like Governor Whitmer did. And then she's now protesting with the social justice warriors. Um, and I'm, by the way, I understand peaceful protests completely valid and, and in every way, but not the violent protesters. Um, and we've seen what nearly 800 cops now hurt in all of this. What are your thoughts about the criticism you've taken on? Because I, except for the meatpacking plant that you were able to contain very quickly, I, I didn't see any problems in South Dakota. You know, we, uh, we're doing really well. We've had numbers declining. Uh, we were supposed to be hitting our peak right now, Sean, according to all the modeling that was out there and the data and information that we brought in to plan for. Uh, instead, we've gone the other direction. It's been six weeks now. Uh, since we, um, you know, told people that they needed to get back to normal. Uh, we never closed any businesses. We uh, told people they didn't have to shelter in place, but we still asked people to do social distancing and do a lot of that. But for the last six weeks, we've seen some bigger events get planned and held. Uh, we've seen South, South Dakota will go back to normal, and we still see declining infection rates. So 
you know, we keep our eye on the ball. We know that we could continue to see waves of infections. My main goal was to plan for taking care of those that might need extra health care, to, to plan and have the capacity in place for those that might need an ICU bed, a hospital bed, that we would have the ability to provide that. And we do. Uh, we've got that capacity there, so we'll get through this together, but we're doing very, very well, very, very well. Well, that's great news, too. I mean, when you look at TV, you know, Eric Garcetti, the uh, L.A. mayor, is asking protesters to self-quarantine in 14 days. I, 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 by the way, he said it without a mask on. I mean, I'm sitting there, really? Okay. Um, look, it probably would be the prudent thing to do. I don't think anybody's going to do it. We haven't seen any indication that any of these big cities could even get citizens in their cities to abide by a curfew. Uh, they have done nothing to you know, stop the violence. We see now what's happening all over Seattle. They're taking over city blocks and police precincts. So I don't have confidence that anybody's going to do any of this. No, we've, uh, we've just really relied on people to make uh, the best decisions for themselves and for their families. If you have somebody in your family who has a pre-existing health condition that they could get very ill from the virus, then yes, take some extra precautions, keep them home, run some errands for them. If you have a, someone that's um, a little older that could be more susceptible, absolutely make some good decisions. But I think what people have overwhelmingly appreciated in South Dakota is that, um, you know, we gave them personal responsibility. We we gave them the information, had an honest conversation, and then let them uh, decide what actions they would take on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. We've had a lot of protests uh, in different communities throughout the state, I suppose, in a couple of weeks, we'll see if we see an increase in infections. But really, my whole goal the entire time was to plan uh, and use uh, modeling in order to prepare to have capacity in the healthcare system. So did, did you ever think you would ever see so many mistakes, so many predictions that are wrong? You ever think that we'd we'd see a situation all the models are wrong? Now, finally, the WHO, they come out with, oh, no, asymptomatic people cannot spread the disease. That was like last week. Oh, well, that's nice no. of you to figure it out. And, of course, China and the World Health Organization lied a lot. Yeah, it's really been interesting to watch the whole process. And and I told folks uh, for months now, every day we're learning new things about the virus. But, but boy, have we been off a lot in, in the different science behind it and then even what has been revealed to the public. So, um, you know, it's been a grave disservice to the people of this country and to the world. And uh, I don't want to discredit our healthcare officials and experts. We're going to need them in the future. But I also know that we have to learn from this uh, what actions to take and what actions not to take in the name of public health, uh, because there's certainly consequences uh, for doing what we did this time. And they're going to be long lasting and be dramatic and just as life threatening in many cases. You know, it's really, really scary. But listen, uh, uh, Governor, keep up the good work. Um, I love the rugged individualism of so many people in the red state of America and the fact that they are fiercely independent and they are out there fighting for themselves and their families. And and frankly, the 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 coast, if you will, would not have survived if not for middle America, keeping their factories open, continuing the building of all of the medical supplies needed. If the farmers didn't farm, the packers didn't pack, the truckers didn't truck. Uh, we would have been out of food within like three days, but they kept us and sustained us. And, you know, it's amazing. There is disdain, uh, unfortunately, 
around the country for the people that do all the working and living and surviving in this country. And, and then they're viewed as, oh, flyover country. Well, I happen to love the people in flyover country, including South Dakota. So uh, thank well, you for everything. Us, Sean. Uh, help us tell I'm, our I'm story looking at my schedule to have... see if I can get away. That's right. You do it. You come see us. And uh, because I really think that South Dakota can be an example to the nation and we've got the best people there there is. So uh, we'll change your life. Come enjoy. Come enjoy our state. OK, uh, I will. Governor, great to uh, talk to you again. Glad to have you on often. Eight hundred nine four one. Sean, you want to be a part of the program. We'll get to a lot of calls here. A lot in the news. A lot you want to comment on. Uh, let us say hi to John in California. John, hi. How are you? Glad you called. Uh, thank you so hey. much. Hey, Sean, thank you for having me on the, your um, online. You know, I'm a longtime listener. And, you know, the other day I was listening to a couple um, a gentlemen you were talking to about some solutions with the inner city and the diversity with the churches. And I thought you really had, uh, you nailed it on the head when you said that the churches need to get together in the inner city, in the, in the inner city because, you know, right now we're trying to ask the community to come, right, come together when the churches aren't coming together in these cities. And I really believe that you are the man of influence, John, a great man of God, that you can pull some of these great leaders together and, and say, hey, let's do this. Let's come together for the purpose of diversity into our inner cities and to our, you know, our struggling communities. Listen, I will tell you, to me, when I was talking to George Floyd's pastor yesterday, and I, I said, have you noticed what I noticed? You go to, and I've lived in five different states. Have you noticed what I know, which is that you kind of look around and the churches are, well, you know, predominantly African-American or predominantly white American. And I wondered if, we, you know, if they could sort of say, okay, invite people to our church this week and we'll invite you to our, ch- our church the week after. I mean, I think there is probably the best place to start, right? Especially if you have the same faith. Uh, Anyway, good call, John. Thank you. When we come back, right to the phones we go, 800-941-SEAN, if you want to be a part of the program. We'll continue. Before I move us to the economy, I've got to go back to the first portion of that question, though, Mr. Vice President. You said that they were wrong in thinking that, but that is their feeling. So give them a sense of why. No, that's not true. Show me a poll that says that. I didn't say any poll. Tell me I a said poll. That, well, you said they think. Say, you are, you, I said, you are and I speaking said to for you, young people. No, Mr. Vice President, you're going to have to listen. I said I had an email from a couple of young people today. I didn't oh, mention okay. a poll. All right. And I said that that was their concern. I, it's a legitimate concern. They should be skeptical. They should be skeptical. It's not fair. The Constitution says all men and women are created equal. What is the plan up until November to make sure that people can vote, to make sure that everyone, whether it's Republican or Democrat, black or white, has the opportunity to vote without being in a line that's six hours long? It's my greatest concern, my single greatest concern. This president's going to try to steal this election. This is a guy who said that all mail-in ballots are fraudulent, voting by mail, while he sits behind the desk in Oval Office and writes his mail-in ballot to vote in the primary. Have you ever considered what would happen if the election result came out as you being the winner and Trump refused to leave? Yes, I have. I was so damn proud. You have four chiefs of staff coming out and ripping the skin off of Trump. And you have so many rank and file military personnel saying, whoa, we're not a military state. This is not who we are. I promise you, I'm absolutely convinced they will escort him from the White House with great dispatch. 
you know, the rapidly rising uh, um, uh, in with, uh, with uh, I don't know, uh, I'm beginning to get bored by my own talk here. Uh, I'm bored by his own talk, too. All right. The ever forgetful Joe. I just it's my favorite thing, though, when he starts. Oh, this truth be self-evident that all men and women and are created by. Uh, we hold these the things to be self-evident. All men and women created by. Go. You know, the you know, the thing. You know, the thing, the thing, the God thing, the God creator of everything, thing, thing. Unbelievable. All right, let's get to some phone calls here. Let us say hi to Mick is in Washington. Mick, hi, how are you? Glad you called, sir. Welcome aboard. John, thank you very much for having me on, uh, as this is my last First Amendment outlet. Um, as uh, you mentioned, I'm in Washington near Seattle, where if you fly anything other than the Antifa flag, you stand the chance of being maimed or severely beaten. Um, and that kind of brings me to uh, the, the feeling here is that with these defund conversations, we're negotiating with the victorious terrorist regime. Is It feels like, uh, particularly here, uh, let, let, let me tell you, state. listen, this, this is now, you know, putting aside, you know, the horror. There, there was universal outrage, rightly so, over what happened with George Floyd. But when you have now we're going on 800 cops hurt, police precincts burned to the ground, you know, looting, arson, rock throwing, bottle throwing, brick throwing, Molotov cocktail throwing and governors, you know, incapable or not even desiring to stop it all. You go from literally one day, you know, that we all have to socially distance and wear our masks. And then the same politicians that were telling us that they're out there protesting and uh, no, with no social distancing, I mean, the hypocrisy, I don't even know where you, you begin on all of this, but uh, it's sad to see the country. Now, we have to have law and order. You know, we, we can talk about all sorts of societal underpinnings, for socioeconomic and and the fact that there are racist people in this country. I don't want anything to do with them, nor does anybody else. That is not the vast majority of the American people by a stretch. They're marginalized and everyone looks at them like as they should, ignorant, frankly, bordering on evil. But the reality is this, that we have a, a job to keep our cities and our towns safe, that we, we've got to restore order. Now, we've watched for decades now all these cities with all this violence, and you don't hear a word about it. You just read something every Monday. Okay, how many people were shot in Chicago this weekend? Well, those are our fellow human beings. Uh, they deserve protection. They deserve to live in a safe neighborhood. You know, we chronicle all of the educational failures in the country, too. And we spend more per capita per student than any other country on the face of the earth. And, yeah, we're like 37th. You know, how do you have 13 uh, Baltimore public high schools without a single student proficient in math? Not one. I, I, I had, and they're the third highest spending per capita city in the entire country. It's unbelievable. That is institutional failure. Um, there's a lot of things that are wrong here. And yet everything gets thrown on the lap of Donald Trump. And meanwhile, pre, pre-coronavirus, you know, look at, look at all the records he's been setting, especially for minorities in America. And the other things that he's done that he's never going to get credit for, opportunity zones, the criminal justice reform bill. Um, you know, we can go through the whole list of things. So, you know, this from my perspective is, you know what? Everybody's going to make their own decision. 
You know, when I say that you, we, the American people, you are the ultimate jury, that is just a fact. I can't control this. I can't tell everybody, you've got to vote a certain way and everyone's going to listen to me. If everyone listened to me, well, Barack Obama would have lost and Joe Biden would have lost uh, two terms in 2008 and 2012. So, you know, you have a, a battle of, of the, for the direction of the country. And I look at this, this one vision for this country, New Green Deal, appeasement on foreign policy, and it scares the hell out of me because I think that means for our kids and grandkids an unrecognizable America. Um, I see cities out of control and anarchy and taking over streets and, and police stations and precincts and the looting and the arson. It's sad. Um, I see what happened to George Floyd is, is so tragic, so unnecessary. He should be alive today. And his family is rightly upset and others are rightly outraged. Uh, but then you have others that will use anything to their advantage. Um, it, it just, unfortunately, is a state of affairs today. Um, but I hope that we can at least restore order. I hope that our kids can go to safe schools. I hope every kid in America gets to live in a safe neighborhood. I mean, when you think about the commonality, our own humanity here, what do we want? Don't we all want the same thing? If you believe, as Joe says, that we're all, that our rights come from God, we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. That, that means rights don't come from the state. Rights come from um, a, a God, a creator. Okay, if you believe that and you believe God created every man, woman, and child, why can't we keep each other safe? Be one united American states. Um, I see a lot of divisions. Kind of, it's it's never been this bad that I can remember. And I've been through a lot of elections, and I've said a lot of times during elections in the 31 years I've been doing this on radio and the 25 at Fox. Um, this is a tipping point election. This is this is it. This really, I I can't imagine a clearer distinction between two different. Uh, philosophies uh, in terms of approaching rights and governance than this one. I try to capture it all. My new book is coming out in August, uh, and I give a history of the failures of socialism. I give a history of the founding principles that our, that our, our founders and framers deeply believed in, because if we don't learn those lessons of failure and don't learn what they, we've done right, and then, for example, then I evolve into what the president has been successful with, and I compare it to the failures of Barack and Joe— you know, just I want everybody to have a very, very clear understanding of what is at stake here. And that's why, you know, I, I, I engaged in a pro project yet again that I swore I'd never do because I, I hate doing it. It's hard work. But I felt the moment was right. Haven't written a book in 10 years. And I feel like this moment, this is it. There's everything on the line, including border security or amnesty, including you know, bribing dictators with, you know, boatloads of cargo planes with cash and other currency. It's all about uh, whether or not we believe in capitalism versus the phony promises of socialism. You know, so much that I, in the process of putting together the research for the book, I'm like, oh, man, I thought I remembered this, thought I remembered that. There's so much I forgot. Long Island, thank you for a good call. Todd next, Sean Hannity Show. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, long time, long time listener, uh, first time caller. I just want to let you know that uh, although I agree with you on, on so much, I, I think we're missing a huge opportunity here as conservatives to apply our conservatism uh, consistently and equally and really put our values out there. When I hear calling to defund the police, what I hear is somebody that's crying out for a limited government solution. 
which is actually where our values lie. And if we're going to have a limited government solution, we have to change the conversation. We can't have the conversation on the level that the left is trying to have the conversation on. The conversation shouldn't be about defunding the police. And no, we shouldn't defund the police. But people that are asking for that are asking to get government out of their lives. And that is a conservative viewpoint and a place where we can start a conversation on. Listen, I, 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 I'm telling you right now, defunding the police means you don't have a police department because nobody's going to work for free. And I'm telling you, you're seeing mass resignations in police departments and people that I know that have been dedicated their whole life that have worked well beyond their eligibility age for retirement. They're getting out. They're saying, that's it. We're done. They feel like they cannot even do their job. You know, we have a presidential candidate basically condemning all cops as all racist. Um, I mean, that's the thanks you get. Look, I can tell you one thing. There, now, there are certain places in the country that you can make a pretty decent living following your passion, your calling in life, and being a cop. But there are other places in, in life as well where you don't get paid very much, but you still love it. Every cop I know wanted to always be a cop. Um, every pilot I know, same thing. People that are doctors and nurses, they're called to it. They want to do it. And, you know, certain professions, you know that you're going to max out. There's only a limited amount of money you're going to be able to make, but you do it and you make the financial sacrifice because it's what you want to do with your life. And if you don't enjoy your life and your job, what's the point? So, I mean, Sean, I I agree on every one of those points. Did you watch the president's summit yesterday with the black leaders? I did. I did. I I had Dean Bongino and Pastor Scott on yesterday. Did you see Sonny Johnson really basically saying the same things that you're saying, but also saying that we're not giving them these limited government solutions that they're asking for? And we're absolutely having the wrong conversation with the black community in these cities. And we're not going in there. We're not representing uh, conservative values. We're not putting conservative candidates out there. And we're not doing the things that can reduce the local impact that government has on their lives. And that's what I hear when I hear defund the police. I don't think defunding the police is what they want or what they need or what should be done. But they're looking for a way to reduce the impact on government that they face every single day. And that's a conservative principle. Listen, I, I I do. I think there is, you know, look, the left does things for a reason. You know, I always say everyone says they don't want negative ads, but then we all know why we these politicians use negative ads, because we say that we don't want them, but they actually work. Um, the left really, really, really believes. What's different between now and, say, other elections gone by is they've never been this open and honest about the socialism that they really and truly embrace. I don't even think they ever thought they could get this far with it, but now they're beginning to embrace it. But they also do something every two and four years, and it's what I always say. And you can see it happening now. Republicans are racist, and they're sexist, and they're misogynist, and they're homophobic, and xenophobic, and Islamophobic. They want dirty air water, and they want to throw granny and grandpa over a cliff when they're in their wheelchair after a year of eating dog food and cat food. Uh, I don't know those people, but that's that is their caricature of what a conservative is. You've got everybody in the mob and the media. They just hate Donald Trump. They they are putting every bit of effort they have into defeating him. I've never seen one person like him in his particular case be able to take so much and just you know sort of like I can always refer to Rocky Linda last whenever I do this the, the conversation he has with his older son. You know, nothing's going to hit as hard as life itself. 
not a matter of how hard you get hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. That's what living's about. Yeah, this life is going to knock you down to your knees. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. There's a lot to learn in that, isn't there? Uh, anyway, 800-941-SEAN if you want to be a part of this extravaganza. we got a great Hannity tonight, 9 Eastern, Fox News. News you won't get from the mob, the media. All right, Hannity tonight, 9 Eastern, Fox News. The latest developments, obviously a city or city blocks and a police precinct uh, being held up by a radical, well, whatevers. Uh, we'll have the latest on that. Also, the president is back on the road today. We'll follow that story very, very closely. We'll take a look at where we stand 145 days from now as... Well, basement bunker Joe just keeps screwing it up for himself every single second of every day. That's all tonight, 9 Eastern, Say DVR, Hannity, Fox News. Thanks for being with us. Back here tomorrow.